So this morning we're going to be in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. If you brought your Bible with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and open it up there. Again, that's Luke 12, 13 through 21. If you did not bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So I don't know if there's any uh, video gamers in the house or not. Uh, I, I used to be, it, it became too big of a time crutch, uh, time What's the word I'm looking for? A time enemy, a time eater. Uh, it became too much of that for me. And so I had to, to, to cut that out of my life. But, and that's part of what, what I want to talk to you about this morning. Is cause I kind of had a love-hate relationship with video games. I loved them because they were an escape. And, and those of you, when you think of video games, you think of Pong. Uh, let's update you a little bit. They're basically uh, kind of interactive movies. Today, it's a story that's being told. Uh, there are a lot of good storytellers in that part of the world, so I'm certainly not hating on that, on, on that form of entertainment. And, and, and it was an escape for me because I was able to enter into a different world, be an interactive part of that world. But it was also an enemy of mine because I'm the kind that once I start a story, I can't finish it until the story's done. If I really get into a story, I have to not only make sure that that story gets told, but that it gets told quickly because I'm constantly wondering what's next. I don't read nearly as much as I should, but when I pick up a good book that I'm always wondering what's next, you find I'll read that in a couple of days because I can't just put that down. And so that's what video games became for me. And, and in a way, they ended up owning my time, which is why I had to say goodbye to them. They ended up not being a form of entertainment, but more of a prison cell, more of a jail time for me, more of a distraction from what I should really be about. And what happened is that which I owned actually became to own me. In our wealthy world, we know what it's like sometimes to feel like our stuff or our wealth owns us more than we own it. But we know that since God is God, we own nothing. So really, the only choice we have is to what we will give ourselves to. And so this morning, as we started the second sermon in our series over money matters, looking at how God's word instructs the Christian to handle the money with which he has blessed us, I want to give you this main idea. Give yourself to God and not to your stuff. Give yourself to God, not to your stuff. Again, we as humans don't own anything. Everything is on loan. The question we have is what will we give ourselves to? May we be a people who give ourselves to God and not our stuff. And this morning in in the gospel that we're going to read from in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a famous parable, but one that speaks to this very idea of being owned by something rather than owning that thing that we have. Again, Luke chapter 12 Verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich 
toward God. Jesus was in the midst of teaching a large crowd of thousands, according to earlier in Luke 12. Some of the things that he taught them in this chapter before he moves on to this parable. He teaches them to beware the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, as he taught... uh, He commonly taught throughout the gospel narratives. He taught them not to fear physical violence because their lives were valuable to God. He encouraged them to acknowledge Jesus Christ before men and that he in turn would acknowledge them before his father. And just before the passage that I read, he tells people how to defend themselves when authorities come against them. That they are not to be anxious, but to wait for guidance from the Holy Spirit who will tell them what to say when someone comes against them. And it is in the context of this teaching that someone in the crowd, for whatever reason, feels the need to demand that Jesus set his brother straight so that he can get what he thinks he clearly deserves. There's a man, you can imagine, in the crowd. You know those people who listen to sermons thinking, man, I hope so-and-so was here to listen to that. I hope so-and-so is, is catching that. Or, or maybe you read a passage and you think, man, I need, to, I need to screenshot this and send it to so-and-so because they really need to hear this truth. Maybe this was this guy. But it wasn't even this guy because he's kind of completely off the subject of what Jesus is talking about. Uh, maybe he's that, that kid in class that, that's listening and, and has something else completely going on in their mind and, and raises their hand and asks a teacher an off-the-wall question. And the, t- the question that he asks the teacher, the question that he asks Jesus is basically like a little kid. Hey, Jesus, tell my brother to share with me. Those of you who have little kids, you've probably had that happen to you before. When one of your children will approach you and say, Mom or Dad, tell so-and-so that they have to share with me. That that thing that they have, that that toy that they have, that that gift that they were given, that the food that they got out of the refrigerator, tell them that they have to share with me. And in the midst of, and we can look at it like with 2,000 years of perspective, so it's kind of unfair to the guy, but in the midst of hearing the Lord of the universe encapsulated in human flesh, speaking truth truth about how to live life, speaking truth about what to do when you're in danger. In the midst of all of that, this guy has the question of, God, I want to make sure I get what's mine. Y'all remember those commercials? I think it was some kind of lawyer commercial that would help you out if you had some money that was really yours and they were kind of giving it to you over time and you wanted it right now. Y'all remember those commercials? It's my money and I want it Now, yes, you remember those commercials? Uh, How There might not be a better phrase to encapsulate 21st century America than that phrase, right? It's mine, and I want it now. I want it right now. All of you can appreciate that and understand that probably to some degree. Either when it was back when you were a child and you wanted that thing, or maybe today we also have the sense of impatience. Maybe I'm the only one that struggles with it, but we want what we want, and we want it now. And this was the spirit in which this man came to Jesus and asked, or basically didn't ask a question, demanded, Jesus, tell my brother he has to divide his inheritance with me. Jesus doesn't answer the question, not directly anyway. He basically says, man, who am I to be a judge or arbitrator over you or who appointed me to do that work? Jesus could be telling the man a couple of things. He could be telling him that he doesn't have the legal authority to settle such a dispute. That was usually settled by the Jewish hierarchy in a synagogue. And maybe Jesus is telling him, I'm not called to do that, or I'm not in position to do that. Or maybe, and I like this idea better, maybe Jesus is telling him that he was there for much more important reasons than settling petty disputes about money between two brothers. Jesus immediately moves to those more important things when he tells this parable of the rich fool. 
And the, te- the story that he tells, we have a man that's the center of that story that is the picture, the epitome of self-centeredness. If you go back and you count it up, at least in, in my ESV translation, he uses the word I or my ten times in three verses. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul, he even says. And by the way that he talks to himself, we can see that in his mind, he was the sole owner, S-O-L-E, sole owner of everything in his life, even his soul, S-O-U-L. He was the owner of everything. He had complete discretion, complete ownership over everything in his life. Because he's presented with a problem that many of us would like to have. He had so much stuff that he didn't have anywhere to put it. And so he thinks to himself, and I love the way that he talks to himself in this parable. It makes me laugh. He says to himself, self, what am I going to do with all this stuff? I I need to build some new barns so that I can have a place to put my grain that will be there for me later. And then he says to himself, and again, you see the picture of arrogance, the picture of lackadaisicalness, the picture of that idea of self-ownership. When he says to his soul, soul, everything's going to be fine. We have enough to last us lifetimes. Just relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He is the epitome of self-centeredness. Even thinking that he owns his very soul. But since we know that all good gifts have come from God, we know that every blessing that the rich man had belonged actually to God. Here's a truth that we need to hear in our materialistic society. You have absolute ownership over absolutely nothing. There is nothing on this planet that we own. We don't get to own anything. We are here for a limited time. So by the very nature of our existence, everything that we have, even down to our families and to the breath within our lungs, is on loan from God, who is the creator of everything. If you go back to the beginning, God formed us out of the dirt of the ground. He spoke us into existence. Everything that exists is there because he created it. We get to own nothing. We have absolute ownership over absolutely nothing. The rich man didn't get that. He thought he owned everything. And so he worked diligently for material gain without ever caring for his soul, all of which, which, was, all of which was on loan. The soul of the rich man rested in his own wealth and not God's. This, again, could be us today. That we allow our souls to rest on stuff, on wealth, on material gain. That we allow our souls to rest in things that aren't bad, but that shouldn't be the core of our hope. We allow our souls to rest in making sure that we have enough money put away for retirement. And again, that's not bad. You should plan ahead. You should do those things. But allowing our soul to rest there, that's not what God built us for. We allow our souls to rest in running the rat race and and making sure that, that we give our kids all kinds of material gain so that they can at least measure up to the kids around them, if not have more. We make sure that we too can, can measure up to those around us and the cars that we drive and the homes that we live in and, and, and the way that we carry ourselves in the world and, and, and dress ourselves, making sure that we meet the American standard of living and we can rest in that instead of resting in God. This might be the biggest danger for us in the room today. The biggest danger for the American church is that we allow our souls to rest in what we have done and not in what God has done for us. 
And that we too might be like the rich man. We might not say it out loud. And that, that's obviously not something someone would do. Jesus is, is, is using an expression to make a deeper point. He's using hyperbole. And, he, and he's saying that we might do this as well. That at least subconsciously we might say to ourselves, everything is going to be fine. I have plenty of money put away. I know that I have retirement taken care of. I know that I have my kids taken care of. I've got the trust fund so that they can go to school that I want them to. And again, none of that's bad. But if inwardly we're saying, everything is fine. I can rest in that and just eat, drink, and be merry, and we forget about the nature of our soul and fail to care for our relationship with the Lord, that suddenly everything at a moment's notice could come crashing down around us. Don't trust yourself over God because guess what? You will let you down at some point. You're going to fail yourself at some point in your life if you haven't already. If you haven't already, I want to know what you're doing, but chances are you have already failed yourself and you will do it again. Let not your rest lie in self, but in what God has done. And in putting his soul's trust in his own possessions, the rich man became owned by his things and not the owner. You can see it even in the problem that he starts with. Has so much stuff that I can't even put it anywhere. Like never did it cross his mind that maybe God gave me extra so that I could share it with my brothers and sisters around me. We'll talk more about that later. But that never crossed his mind. Instead, he's thinking, I have all of this stuff. And, and, and you can imagine this rich man that he probably already had storehouses full of stuff. But he's going to build some more. He's going to rest in his possessions in that way. And he became owned by trying to figure out what to do with all of his things and making sure that no one stole from him and making sure that they were well taken care of and that he didn't lose all of the millions that he had. There's a singer-songwriter I like named Joe Pug that in one song of his, he has this line that I think speaks to this truth. He says, the more I buy, the more I'm bought, and the more I'm bought, the less I cost. It's a beautiful line if you listen to it again. The more I buy, the more I'm bought. The more stuff I have sometimes, the more that stuff becomes to own me. And the more I'm bought, the more that I'm owned by that around me, the less I cost, the less I'm worth the less I'm able to give myself to my family and to my God because I have given myself out to so many things. Do you ever let your possessions own you? Don't answer that too quickly. Of course I don't. Don't answer too quickly. Especially you smartphone users out there. Isn't it funny how we talk about smartphone users? Isn't it weird that we use that language, the same language we would use of a drug user? to be owned by that which we have. And and look, I pick on that because that's something that I struggle with. But there are many things that can own us. I've mentioned several of them already, from homes to cars to careers, whatever it might be. But do we allow our possessions to own us? Are you building wealth or your own prison by what you have surrounding you? The rich man learns the hard way that God is the true owner. It says in my ESV that the Lord came, God came and said, fool, your soul is required of you today. In some other translations, it might say something like demanded. Your soul is demanded of you today. You know, in the Greek, what that actually connotes is a debt owed. It's as if God showed up and said, hey, remember that soul that I let you borrow? I'm requiring it back today. And guess what? That day's coming for all of us unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. 
That he's going to come back and he's going to say, that soul that I let you borrow, those people that I let you do life with, that time that I let you borrow, that air that's filling your lungs that I gave you on loan, I'm coming back to call the debt today. And if our hope is in our stuff, at that moment, everything will be destroyed. Because it all is is just grass that will wither away and burn. Instead, if our hope is founded in Jesus, we can say goodbye to that stuff. We can say that's fine because my treasure is in you, not the stuff that you're asking back today. The treasure that we can have in him is so much greater than that which we sometimes cling to, which we allow to own us instead of us to own it. Everything that the rich man owned, everything that he possessed, even his own soul was on loan from God. You own nothing. And what was his, God tells the rich man, will now belong to someone else. All of that stuff that you gathered, that storehouse that you built so you can make sure there was room for all of that stuff that you gathered, that's going to be somebody else's now, he tells the rich man. We don't know if it's a descendant of his or if it's just somebody else will come and take it. We don't know. What a waste of time for the rich man to create all of this wealth and store up all of these blessings and never get to use them. It would be like winning the lottery and dying the next day. That you have all of this wealth, that you're, you have all of these dreams, right? You're going to have a pool like Scrooge McDuck and you're going to fill it with money and you're going to swim in it. And, or you're going to have this awesome car, all these vacations, all of these plans that you have for your money. And then poof, your soul is required of you and you don't get to spend a dime. Your hope is found in money. That story might be sad to you. But if it's found in God, okay. So I, I don't get that pool filled with money. Instead, I get to drink constantly from the river of life that flows from the throne of God in heaven. Okay, I, I don't get to think about what that money can buy me. and Instead, I get to think about Jesus and his sacrifice that bought me the eternity that I get to spend in his life. If you read this story and you feel bad for the rich man, you're missing the point. If he had had his hope founded in God, he wouldn't have anything to be sad about. He could say goodbye to all that stuff. And again, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. But if his hope was found in God, he could say goodbye to that stuff and not have his soul downtrodden because he was having to give it up. The rich man was not the true owner. His life belonged to someone else. What a waste of time and putting all that together. Aren't you glad that's not you? Let me ask you some tough questions, and I say they're tough because I've asked these selves my questions, and they're not easy. Do you spend more time caring for your material possessions than you do your family? So you are owned. You are not an owner. Let me ask an even harder one. Do you spend more time caring for your material possessions than you do caring for your relationship with Jesus Christ? I know what our world is today, and if I know I'm not going to do this, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand, if that's you, most of you would have to raise your hands. Because the time that we spend in Christ pales to the time we spend gaining wealth. Now look, I'm not saying you can't work. I'm saying you can do your work and you can earn your money in light of Jesus Christ. That he calls us to do everything as if we were doing it for him. He tells us that through the Apostle Paul. I'm not saying you need to quit your job or anything like that. I'm saying you need to take a different outlook. Why are you doing what you're doing to build wealth or to be obedient to Christ? 
Are you owned or are you an owner? Be rich toward yourself, not, not toward yourself, but to God. It's the final word that we have given in this parable. Spend more time making deposits into your relationship with Christ than you do into your bank account. Again, give yourself to God, not your stuff. doesn't mean that you shouldn't have stuff or wealth. It just means that you should live knowing that the stuff you have, including your soul, isn't yours but God's. We're going to talk next week about what it means to be a good steward of what God has given us. But today, I want you to take stock of your relationship with your things, with your wealth, and ask yourself, who owns who? Do you own those items? And if you own them, like, are, are they being used for the glory of God? Do you own your wealth, or does your wealth own you? And what might you need to let go of, even if it is just an attitude, but maybe it is something material? What might you need to let go of so that you can give yourself more fully to God? More fully to obedience to his son, Jesus Christ. I love that we got to see the metaphor of baptism today. And then we got to celebrate with these individuals. One mistake we make about the whole idea of salvation and baptism, especially in the Baptist church sometimes, is that we think if we get saved and we get dunked, then that's it. We got the fire insurance and we can go on. But the Christian life as presented through Scripture is daily dying to self. Daily taking up your cross and following after Jesus. Daily saying no to what you want and saying yes to what Jesus wants. Saying that so much that what you want becomes what he wants. May we do that in our finances as well. May we put to death the desire to be surrounded by things. And may those of us with wealth, by the way, that's 99% of us in this room, may those of us with wealth use that for the glory of God, to give it back to him, to that which he has given us, to give it back. That's how you keep from being owned, is that you realize it isn't yours, and you use it for the glory of the people around you, and ultimately for the glory of God. May we be a people who are not owned by our things, but realize instead that we are owned by our God who has given us things on loan that can be used for our owner's glory. This morning, again, what is your relationship with your stuff? Who owns who? And what might you need to cut out of your life in order to give yourself more fully to the one who already owns you?